the Island Portugal Business Network is comprised of more than 150 member companies based in Portugal and Ireland. These companies are from a wide range of industries and professions and represent in excess of 25,000 people. In light of recent events, the IPBN asked, what will banking look like in the future? We got key insights into this topic on April 27th at the IPBN Conversation with a Leader in the Algarve with IPBN member Clive Bidewell, Managing Director at KnowledgeSmith. Listen here to the best parts of Clive's talk when he gives us an in-depth look at the future of banking, guiding us through a brief history of resets, the implications of the current one, and how it will affect our finances. Clive explains the reason that cash, gold, and Bitcoin are threats to the new banking system, what bifurcation can bring to the financial world, and how to approach imminent inflation. We do hope you enjoy the conversation, and please note, this talk was purely for educational and entertainment purposes and is not to be confused with personalized financial advice. Enjoy. All right, good morning, everyone. Um, I count it uh, a privilege to be here this morning and to just talk to you about uh, some very interesting facts and interesting things that are taking place in the financial world and in the banking world. I want to start off by saying that I don't have a crystal ball and I can tell everything that's going to happen. I spend about four hours a day um, listening to macroeconomists and to listen to what's actually taking place in the world. And all I can say to you is that we live in some very, very interesting times. Um, a lot of the information has been kept from the public, and I mentioned in an article that I wrote about bread and circuses, is that um, we are distracted from what's really going on in, the, in, in, in our financial world um, by all the sporting events and all sorts of things, which is actually done on purpose to keep our uh, attention away from what's really going on. And what I want to do today is I want to be able to just bring to you some uh, scenarios of what could possibly happen in the future. Now, as I mentioned, I don't have a crystal ball, so you need to understand that um, I'm giving you the best uh, uh, scenarios, um, but it's really up to you to actually make up your own minds and to do your own research um, as, you, as you look into the subject. Um, my presentation is broken up into two portions. Um, the first portion is really to explain the problem that we have in our financial worlds, and the second portion is what the solutions or potential solutions are to our problems, okay? Um, I'm going to try to rush through the problem side because I want to get to the positive side. Um, it's too scary to think about some of the potential outcomes of what's going to happen in the future as we go into this great reset. Um, but I do want to say that I would like to spend more time uh, looking at the, at the positive side. We want to be more positive uh, than to uh, talk about all the negative sides. So by way of introduction, um, uh, this article came out two days ago, where uh, a senior official of the uh, central bank in the UK uh, the, uh, said that we need to get used to the fact that we are um, going to have to live um, a poorer lives. And I say absolutely not. We're not going to live with that narrative. We're going to basically make our own uh, futures. We're not going to listen to this nonsense. But uh, the World Economic Forum brought out this thing in 2019, 2020, where basically speaking, they're planning for us to actually own nothing, but yet we'll be happy somehow, um, which, is, which is quite fascinating. Now, to give you a little bit of understanding of who I am, um, and just give you some idea of some of the uh, accomplishments that I've had in my life, is that way back when desktop computers were I don't know if you remember WordPerfect. Does anyone remember WordPerfect and Lotus 1, 2, 3? Do you remember those days? Well, that's when I saw a massive opportunity to teach people about how desktop computing worked and how to use these programs like Lotus 1, 2, 3, Quattro Pro. Do you remember Quattro Pro? Anyway, so I, um, I, I bought four computers, four desktop computers. They were big, big computers, big machines. And... Um, we started a, a computer training company in South Africa, and I grew that company over a period of 10 years. We became a, a Microsoft uh, authorized training center and a Cisco authorized training center. And uh, I was able to sell that company after 10 years for seven figures. But I grew that company, and the big difference that I saw was that there were other companies that I was competing against, much bigger companies than I. And what I decided to do is to take my four computers and go to the client's premises and teach on their site. Nobody was doing this. 
and we grew our company. Uh, 32 staff members when I sold it. Um, and uh, so that was the first business that I started. And then I got involved with uh, an estate agency. Um, we, uh, we built this estate agency in two years to become the third biggest commercial estate agency in South Africa. And I did that by going to the, and this is, you'll, you'll start to see this with me, is that um, I, I look at businesses and I see what's not being done and I look at the op entrepreneurial opportunity and I, I, I implement it. Um, that's what I do. But I saw that there was a gap over here because um, people were buying investment properties in South Africa. But they, uh, I went and did a deal with the uh, developers to create a, a cashback amount that would look after the person's shortfall for the first two years. And as a result of that, our business skyrocketed. And we sold that business um, after... Uh, after about two and a half years. Why is the banking world in such a mess? Well, um, I'm going to go through a little bit of history now, and I'll go through this fairly quickly. Portugal used to be um, uh, the gold, the global gold reserve, uh, as far as gold reserve currencies are concerned, we know this, and that was passed on to Spain and Netherlands. And, but what makes the United States, uh, what makes this country um, the, uh, and the U.S. dollar, the world reserve currency. Does anybody know that answer? Well, Brenton Woods, in the dying moments of the Second World War, um, there was an agreement between 44 nations that they would adopt the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency. In order to bring America into the war, they, they agreed to allow America to be the re world reserve currency. And they pegged every, every currency, every country pegged its, um, its own currency to the U.S. dollar uh, within it, 1% uh, bandwidth, band range, um, uh, and then they pegged the US dollar to $35 per ounce uh, of gold. So it was a gold, it was, it was called as good as gold, okay? You, you pegged your, your currency to the gold, uh, to gold, and, um, and that's how things started in 1944. If you have a look at uh, some of the older currency, American currency and some of the British currency, you'll notice that it actually says on the currency that it's backed by gold. Okay, so you as the bearer could actually go to the reserve bank and swap your paper money for gold. It was possible to do that. Um, and then um, going back a few years, uh, President Roosevelt uh, confiscated the gold of the American population by uh, executing a, um, a, an executive order um, to, uh, to get the public of America to, uh, to surrender their gold except for their jewelry and a couple of uh, uh, collector's coins. They had to surrender any bullion, any gold that they owned, to the, to the nearest uh, bank, uh, and, and for which he would give them $20.67. Uh, and very shortly after this, he raised the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the gold price to $35, uh, which was a 69.3% increase. So the population lost 69% of their wealth instantly. And he did this. Um, you can imagine how outraged the public was when this took place. But anyway, in 1971, President Nixon um, uh, called the Nixon shock, and he uh, separated. And this happened because the French were becoming increasingly uh, 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 suspicious that America was printing more dollars than they had in gold reserves. And so the French basically sent a warship to the United States and said, please give us back our gold. We'll give you back your American dollars. We want our gold. And as a result of this pressure, President Nixon, and because of the inflation, he actually uh, broke the, or, or surrendered, or uh, severed the gold standard in 1971. Um, three years later, Henry Kissinger went to Saudi Arabia and struck a deal where uh, they, he agreed with Saudi Arabia that they would look after Saudi Arabia. They would actually look after their military needs, look after the country, in exchange for the selling of their oil, and they got all the other OPEC nations to sell their oil in, gold, uh, in, in dollars. And that was where the beginning of the petrol dollar, petrodollar started. There were a couple of people who tried to uh, go against this. They were encouraging the OPEC nations to, sell, to start selling uh, uh, their, their oil in uh, gold and in other currencies, and uh, as we know, what happened to them. And then um, recently, and we're coming up to recent history now, um, uh, 
uh, in Davos this year, uh, Saudi Arabia announced to Davos that they would start accepting payment for oil in currencies other than the United States dollar. And this was quite a shock um, to America. Um, why, um, why this happened was because, and what's happening, and this is what I'm trying to explain, is that uh, a lot of these nations are starting to get sick and tired of America, um, and I, I'm not, not, if there are any Americans here, I've got nothing against Americans, but they're getting sick and tired of being dictated to and told how they basically need to run their economies. And they're becoming very suspicious of the fact, um, the French uh, actually talk about the fact that America would um, print a hundred dollar note for a couple of cents and export that dollar overseas, but countries like Japan had to send goods back to America, which were $100 worth of goods, like your Sony, uh, you know, uh, uh, televisions and that, you would have to base. So America's printing money and basically getting goods and services from, the, from international communities um, at exorbitant uh, markups. So uh, the world is getting, you know, sort of really starting to say, well, listen, we, we're not happy with this anymore. And there's a shift that's taking place. This is the great shift that's taking place at the moment which is actually impacting on, on all of us. Um, as you know that with the Ukrainian war, the Americans weaponized the US dollar um, by applying sanctions on, on Russia. And, um, uh, and they also confiscated about 330 billion uh, uh, reserves of, uh, of, of uh, dollars in, in, in Russia. They confiscated that and um, uh, the rest of the world took notice of this and they said, hang on a minute, we don't like the fact that we've got dollars and uh, America just basically switch off our SWIFT, uh, Swift system just at, at the click of a button. And even Janet Yellen actually said recently that um, uh, they, they're worried that these sanctions are actually hurting the West more than they're hurting Russia and that they are losing, the world is losing confidence in the American dollar. And a lot of this is to do, I mean, when the, when the gold standard was uh, severed, um, you know, what was backing the American dollar and backing our currency is really trust in our governments. We trust that uh, we can take our 20 euros and go and um, purchase goods and services for our, for our, but it's based, it's not, there's nothing backing that currency, okay? Um, there is a big difference between money and currency. Um, sound money like gold is not the same as currency. It's not, it's not backed with anything. And um, so people are starting to really ask a lot of questions. They're starting to feel not as confident as they were when the dollar was backed by gold. And so uh, a number of the other thing that's happening is that we're starting to find that, uh, there, I don't know if you saw the news yesterday or the day before, 19 nations have signed up with BRICS so it's not just Brazil, um, Russia, India, China, South Africa. It's now 19 countries have joined BRICS. Um, and and, and the, I don't know if you've heard about the China's Belt and Road Initiative. But there are a number of organizations, number of countries, Pakistan, uh, you know, um, Sri Lanka, number of organizations that are wanting to join the BRICS nations. And uh, China has actually, behind the scenes, been setting up this trade arrangement or trade agreement called the Belt and Road Initiative. There's also the Shanghai uh, Cooperative Organization that are starting to win the trust of a number of different countries, um, South Asia, uh, South American countries, there are a number of them that are starting to side against America with China and Russia. Um, and this is quite alarming and seeing what's actually happening in the world. But when Saudi Arabia decided that they were going to basically turn, turn their backs on America. That was really alarming. That was really when people started to say, hang on a minute, things, things in the world are starting to change. Um, Putin met with uh, President Xi uh, recently, and uh, the, 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 the news is that they are planning to introduce a blockchain currency that would challenge the United States dollar. Now, how that's going to happen, we don't know. Um, uh, we're not sure about what this, what's going to happen there, but they are looking to have a gold-backed currency that will start to challenge the United States dollar. And the Americans are extremely worried about this, extremely worried. Their privilege um, will disappear, and I'll talk a little bit about that later. So Americans are pretty worried about what's going on. Um, 
I'm going to talk to you a little bit about, uh, I find the subject of finance interesting, really fascinating. And it's interesting that we are not taught about finance and financial literacy at schools. And there's a reason for it, because they don't want the average public, uh, Joe, uh, public to understand what's going on in the financial world. But it's fascinating how finance really works. Um, and currency debasement is a very interesting concept. Um, Henry Ford has been quoted as saying, it's as well that the people of the nations do not understand our banking and monetary systems or system, for if they did, I believe that there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. And it's true. If people really understood what was going on, I mean, I asked the question, you know, sort of what is the difference between currency and money? Most people can't answer that. Um, I, I asked a number of different questions, like, for example, what's the difference between nominal uh, growth and real growth? People can't answer these questions. You ask the question, where does inflation come from and how is it manufactured? People don't, answer, people don't know these simple things. I find that finance is easier maths than what we learned at high school. It's really easy to understand this stuff. But most people can't actually, if you ask somebody, um, you know, if you put your money into an account and it has an interest rate of 5% per annum, how much, if you had 100, rand, 100, sorry, 100 euros, you put it into an interest-bearing account and you earned 5%, uh, I asked that question to a number of people. Now, I know you're all intelligent people. You say, yes, of course, 105 euros. But most people don't understand that. They don't understand that if that interest is actually calculated on a daily basis, it's not 105 uh, euros. It's actually more. So, you know, these kind of things uh, people don't understand. And I find it fascinating, this whole subject of uh, financial literacy. But you've got to go back to the Roman times to understand currency debasement and how things work in our world. There, there are two things that we really need to understand um, in this uh, is fractional reserve banking. Does anybody know about fractional? Can, can anybody honestly say, or let's put it this way, does anybody not know what fractional reserve banking? Because that's a discussion for another time. I'm, I'd be happy to come and talk about that one. It's a very, I'm not going to get into that because I don't have enough time. Um, but fractional reserve banking um, and, um, and currency debasement are one of the things that cause inflation to take place. And the inflation that we are often told is like, you know, two, three, four percent, don't worry about it, it doesn't really impact you. But I'm going to show you in this presentation that it is a big thing, a really, inflation is a very big thing. But what happened in the Roman times is that the expansion of the Roman Empire, they weren't able to um, collect taxes and to mine the gold and silver to pay the salaries of the Roman army and the administrators of an expanding empire. Okay, And when the empire expands faster, then you're able to basically produce the money that is required in order to be able to pay the salary. One thing that you learn, and I learned this from Robert Mugabe and uh, many of the guys in Africa, is that you must look after your army. If you don't pay your army, they're going to turn on you. Okay, So the, this comes from Roman times. Romans understood that the first people you pay is you pay your army. But if you don't have enough coin to go around to pay the army, how are you going to manufacture this coin? How are you going to make sure? Because we don't have enough coming out of the ground, and the, the, the empire is growing so fast that we can't pay uh, our salaries. How do we do that? Well, the only way to do that is really to take the gold and the silver that is being mined for that year to mix it with other base metals, increase the volume of the metal, you understand? Then print enough coin to be able to actually pay everybody. Does that make sense? Okay, That's a very simplified, simplistic way of looking at it, but that's what money debasement is. If I didn't, if I had pure silver, and I actually put it into the melting pot, and I could only produce, let's say, a thousand coin, and I had 2,000 uh, uh, recruits or army uh, personnel to pay, I, I have a problem. But I can add copper and I can add nickel and other base metals to increase the volume of that silver in order to be able to print 2,000 coins. Does that make sense? That is essence what currency debasement is. And this happened over the Roman Empire. We believe that it was the cause of the fall of the Roman Empire. One of the causes of the fall of the Roman Empire was basically they debased the denarius, which is a silver coin. Um, and before, um, uh, 100 years before Christ, um, uh, that was almost pure silver. And by the time we got into the 400 years after Christ, or AD, um, 
we found that that content was only 3%. And you'll see, you can't see the figures over here, but it actually shows you how uh, the, 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 the coin, the, the, the silver was actually debased over that period of time. Over a very long period of time, and that's the thing about inflation, you can't really notice, well, we notice it more now, but you don't usually notice it happening, you just know that your prices are going up. It's not so much that the prices are going up, it's basically our cost of living, okay, our, our purchasing power is actually being eroded because of this currency debasement. And it happens today. Um, uh, there are, um, I think, over, I forget the number now, uh, sorry, uh, 815, I think it says there, 845 U.S. bases around the world that are required, an enormous amount, about 800 billion uh, U.S. dollars are spent every year looking after the uh, military expenditure of, uh, of, of the United States. One of the things that the United States, in the agreement, uh, was to become the police force of the world as such. And their expenses are massive. As a matter of fact, if you have a look at the 2022 budget, the, the American budget, and if you get the slide afterwards, go and have a look at it. It's really fascinating. But you'll notice that this on the left, the blue side, is the income from taxes, from all sorts of different ways of income, uh, uh, corporate taxes, uh, uh, individual uh, taxes. Um, and then, of course, the expenditure but there is a almost 30% whole deficit on income to expenditure. For nearly 30%, 28.6%. Okay? And how do you fill that? How do you fill such? I mean, can you imagine if I basically, on my personal level, lived in such a way that I was actually spending much more than I was earning? I mean, I'm going to go broke. But fortunately for America, they can fill that gap by printing money. And they print it and they fill the gap. The problem is that the interest on that money continues to grow year after year. As a matter of fact, after 2008, when the, print, when the money printers went into overdrive, that is when things really became uh, a, a terminal for the US dollar, 2008. And with the pandemic and that, we have just exploded. I mean, the, the amount of money that's being printed today is just absolutely mind-blowing. Charlie Munger said, inflation is a very serious subject. You could argue that it's the way democracies die. And this is the thing. We're living in a time, in a very interesting time, where who knows how long it's going to take for the next reserve currency to change from American hands to the East. Milton Freeman famously said, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon in the sense that it is and can be produced by more rapid increase in the quantity of money than in output. And so, as the denarius was basically uh, debased, so we're finding that our currencies are being, being debased. The, 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 the problem is that most people don't understand at how much this debasement is taking place. And this is the fascinating subject. Um, they have calculated that the dollar since 1913, when... Uh, the Federal Reserve was uh, in, enacted, to today, the purchasing power has been lost. The dollar is only worth about 3% of it, what it was worth in, two, in 1913. And just like the debasement of, uh, of, of, of denarius and the, and the silver coin, so the way I also explain how, how inflation works is that if you have a glass of wine, and you keep on topping up the glass of wine with water, and you sip it, and then, of course, it goes down to halfway, and you put more water, more water, more water. By the end of the night, you will only be drinking water. Am I right? And this is really another way of actually looking at it, is that our purchasing power is being eroded by the printing of money. How bad is it? Well, in March, in the UK... Um, the inflation rate was recorded, CPI inflation rate is recorded at 10.1%. That's alarming. I mean, not only is it alarming, is that most people uh, around the world are experiencing inflation rates that are much, much higher than the CPI rate. As a matter of fact, the uh, governments are very careful not to call CPI inflation, but when it gets broadcasted on the news, uh, it's often referred to as being inflation, but it's not inflation. It's just a basket of goods 
that are concocted in many respects to leave out the things that are the most inflationary uh, items. And then they change the basket year after year. So they basically fudge the numbers, and then they push this on the, on, on the public, and everybody believes, well, my inflation rate is X. I was uh, privileged and able to be able to keep an inflationary basket for about four years, and I was shocked at what I was discovering. And I took things like electricity and petrol and uh, uh, school fees and all sorts of things into my... I had a fairly good basket which was representative of my living standards. And I discovered that when the government in South Africa was basically saying that inflation was 6%, I discovered it was about 14 16%. That was what I was experiencing in my, in my calculations. And I was very, very careful to have done that uh, because I wanted to know what the real situation is. It's very hard to determine what your inflation rate is, but it can be done. There are records where you can actually go, and there's a calculation. If you want this calculation, I have a spreadsheet. I actually produce a lot of spreadsheets. I'm more than willing, if you want a spreadsheet, I have a spreadsheet that will tell you um, uh, uh, how much you would need for to be able to retire comfortably. Very simple spreadsheet to use. Um, one of the things that financial organizations don't do is that they always assume that the inflation rate is CPI-driven, and they put in CPI into that calculation. But when you put your real rate of inflation into that calculation, it gets a little bit, uh, let's put it this way, interesting. And I've got a spreadsheet that, but there's a, spread, there, there's a calculation that you can use to be able to calculate. You can go and look at the records. It will tell you that petrol in the Olgov was at X 10 years ago, what is it today? And you just do a straight line calculation, work out exactly how much that year-on-year growth has been. It's possible to do this. There are many things that you can go and do. Food costs, all sorts of things. You can actually work out, and you can work out more or less what your rate of inflation is. But they keep it secret. They don't want you to be able to actually go and do those calculations. Um, in South Africa, there was actually the, the South African Reserve Bank actually allowed you to do that, but it was a concocted uh, um, a calculation. It didn't represent my rate of inflation because I'd worked it out myself. Um, and uh, so if we have a look at some of these things, for example, some of the, and, and this is pandemic related. I, I get it. You know, it is actually very, very high. Um, but if you look at over the last 10 or 20 years and you do your own calculations, we work out, and when I speak to and I listen to many macroeconomists who are interested in the subject, the figure that they come to is a general figure of about 14%. You should be working on a number of 14%. And the reason why they get this is because the M2 money supply over the last, uh, since 2013, has grown at approximately 14% up until the year 2020. It has subsequently gone, it has skyrocketed. But I always believe that if you set, it's, my, it's the number that I like to work on, but if you set that number at 14% in all your calculations, you would be at least targeting a, a, a realistic figure, okay? And that's up to everybody. I can't tell you what you must do. You must go and do your own research here. But if you target 14%, you'll be doing well. Um, inflation from 1913 to 2023, according to oil, 8,384, according to gold, 9,900, and according to the BLS official CPI numbers is 2,939. And you've got to look at those figures and you've got to say, hang on a minute, what's going on here? Okay. So as I mentioned over here, this, by the way, they've discontinued this because it's uh, becoming too alarming. But if you have a look at the, uh, the M2 money supply, you can calculate it. It's very easy. Now, inflation is calculated by, by um, the amount of money that's printed, okay, offset by goods and services. Okay. And the way I describe this is that when money is printed, if you can get the public through elbow grease and through its effort, goods and services, if it's possible for them to basically be producing the GDP of, of a nation is the same as the amount of money that's being printed, you will not get inflation. All right? It's only when the printing of money is higher than the output, uh, GDP, goods and services, that you get inflation. And um, if you all promise to give this back to me, I'll pass this around, but... Uh, in Zimbabwe, it happened where this note, uh, $100 trillion, real? Yeah. It happened in Germany. This has happened in Germany in the 1920s. 
in Germany, uh, the hyperinflation took place. We don't know whether there'll be hyperinflation in the future. Some people are saying, yes, it's going to happen. Um, sorry? Uh, nothing at the moment. It's... Voltaire basically said paper money eventually returns to its intrinsic value, and that is basically to be burnt. It actually ends up, all, current, all fiat currencies end up, if you look at Argentina and you look at a number of different countries, they have all ended up going to nothing. And if you have a look at countries that have defaulted or have had currency collapses, and this is not a full list, um, it just shows you the number of times that countries have actually defaulted or have had currency um, failures. Now, the big question, of course, is that if my rate of inflation, I say if, if my rate of inflation is at 14%, and I'm just making an assumption, if my rate of inflation is at 14%, how do I make sure that my wealth is growing at at least 14%? Because the way it works is that, and this is where people don't understand the difference between real and nominal. Most uh, pension funds or um, investment companies will say to you, in this portfolio, we will give you a 7% return year on year. And what they're talking about is they're talking about nominal growth has got nothing to do with real growth because they didn't take inflation into consideration. And if they do take inflation into consideration, it's usually fudged. Okay? The numbers are much less than what you and I are experiencing in, in our day-to-day -day lives. Okay? So what they do is they, um, um, they, 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 they will say to you that this portfolio will grow at 7%, or this portfolio is going to shoot the lights out. It's, it's high risk, it's more risky, but we should get you 12% for this, this portfolio. If my rate of inflation is at 14%, what's happening? In real terms, I'm receiving a negative 2% growth in my wealth portfolio. Does that make sense? All right? A lot of people don't know this. They don't understand that. Negative 2%. And the rule of 72 says that if you divide 2, that's the difference, into the number 72, every 36 years your wealth will have halved. 2 divided into 72 is 36, means 36 years your wealth will have halved. If that number is 12... Okay, 12 into 72, it's every six years, your wealth is being halved. That is a scary notion. So how do we combat this inflation? Because, I mean, everybody has to pay the price of bread that's available, and you can't go negotiate with the storekeeper and say, listen, I think that this bread, because of inflation, shouldn't be, you know, so many euros, it should actually be half that. No ways. You, you know, you, all of us have to. How do we fa fight inflation? And this is where I'm coming to the, the crux of this presentation. Central banks, uh, reserve banks, who have caused this inflation in the first place, start to raise interest rates. That starts to take place. We're experiencing that right now. The raising of interest rates puts a squeeze on money supply, which means the velocity starts to slow down. People stop spending money. Uh, liquidity starts to drop. And we've started to see some of these banks uh, collapse. Uh, Credit Suisse... Uh, uh, Signature Bank in America and a number of banks uh, going through it. As a matter of fact, there's somebody who says that's over 100 banks in America at the moment are underwater at the moment. That's what he says. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. Um, this results in falling stock markets, economies going into recession, uh, banks no longer willing to lend to each other or with businesses and individuals. Has anybody tried to apply for a loan recently and find that you got turned down? Okay, it's happening. Banks are saying, no, we're no longer willing to lend. It's not in our interest to lend money anymore um, because uh, the returns, they don't get the returns that they're looking for. Unemployment uh, race, uh, rates increase. Okay, you can see everything I'm saying is what is being experienced here in Portugal, in the United States, and in the UK, all around the world. Business bank and bank failures are taking place. And, uh, you know, they say that, some people say that we're in a recession already. Some people say that we will actually experience a, a fairly severe recession towards the end of this year, going into 2024. As I mentioned, we've had a number of bank collapses. Um, and it's quite interesting to note that a number of people are trying to calm, um, you know, the, 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 the public and uh, calm and say, oh, no, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. You know, nothing to see here. Please move on. 
And you get guys like Jamie Diamond and a few others basically saying, oh, no, you know, everything's going to be sorted out. And that's one of the things that they do is they try to calm everybody down because the worst thing that can happen with the banking system is that there is a run on the banks. And the reason for it is because when you understand fractional reserve banking, the money that you put into the bank is actually not your money, okay? It belongs to the bank. They can do with it what they like. If that bank goes under, and if, unless there's insurance like the FedEx uh, insurance, unless there's insurance on your money, that money's gone. You, you will actually have, like every other creditor, will stand in line to get whatever comes out of the, the liquidation of that bank. Okay? So um, there's a lot of uh, calming of the, of, the, of, the, of the marketplace at the moment um, because they don't want to run on the banks. And uh, you can just read some of these. Uh, uh, I just took a couple of screenshots. I often see things and I just look at this and I think, oh, that's interesting. And I capture, I've got hundreds of these screenshots which just tell a picture. It's quite interesting. Jay Powell and Janet Yellen struggle to calm nerves in the banking crisis. And this is some of the things that we're going through at the moment. So I want you to imagine that the dollar in that slide that you saw is going down to 3%, okay? Uh, the denarius is actually being debased down to 3%. Can it get to a stage where people lose confidence in the currency, lose confidence in their governments? It happens. It actually does happen, right? And this is the reason why Klaus Schwab, in 2019, wrote a book called The Great Reset. And what they were basically saying, nobody knows how this is going to unfold. We don't know what's going to happen. But basically speaking, they're saying we have to, like what happened in Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe, it got inflated so much, that, uh, that dollar, that, that note that you saw. And it got to the point where it just became ridiculous. People were getting their salary, rushing off to go and buy their groceries for the month because the grocery price was basically being increased. Literally, every half day, they were putting the prices up every half day because to keep up with the rate of inflation. But it gets to the point where people just throw their hands up and say, you know what, we don't trust this government anymore. And that's when you have a default. And that's what the Americans are trying to avoid. And so Klaus Schwab came up with a concept that in the next couple of years, we're going to have to collapse that system and start a new system. And with all the technology, blockchain technology that's taking place, they're looking to introduce their own digital currency called a CBDC, and uh, I'm sure, has anybody not heard of CBDCs being produced at the moment? Okay, so there's, there's this new currency that they're looking to introduce called a CBDC, which will be blockchain. It will be programmable money, which means that they can say, when you get your salary, there is a sell-by date on that salary. If you don't spend it within six months, it will go to naught. So it's programmable money. They will say to you that um, we don't like the fact that you're a little bit outspoken about this government, um, so we're going to basically uh, tax you higher than, the other, than other citizens. Okay? Or they could say that we don't like the fact that you've used your carbon footprint for this month has exceeded its target. And so therefore, we're going to stop your international travel. We're going to stop you from traveling. Um, and so they can program this money to do what they like and how they like um, with your money. It's going to be a very interesting concept and interesting to see how things go forward. The threats to CBDCs or this programmable money is cash, gold, and digital assets. Cash, and I don't know if you know this, but governments are, are looking. It's going to be very hard in Portugal, by the way, to do this because Portugal, a lot of Portuguese governments like restaurants that rely on cash. So it'll be take years and years for that to take place. But when I was in the UK, I found myself for the first time in my life not having any cash in my wallet. I just didn't carry cash around. And there are banks today that are actually refusing to give out cash. They're starting to reduce. So there's this pressure to get rid of cash worldwide. Okay? The other thing that's happening is that they don't like gold because gold is a, uh, is, is, um, uh, what's the word? Um, gold competes against CBDCs. So they're not really happy, and there's been, a, I mean, there have been news articles about how uh, J.P. Morgan and Goldman Sachs and a number of these banks have been fined um, over the years because of gold price manipulation. Some interesting things going to take place there as well. Um, digital assets like Bitcoin, of course. Bitcoin is a major threat to this because Bitcoin, if you understand Bitcoin, Bitcoin can't be 
uh, it can't be expanded. There's only 21 million Bitcoin that will ever be produced. We're up to about 19 million at the moment. Um, but it can't, be, it can't be expanded. You can't debase it. It's mathematically impossible to do this. So it has an intrinsic value. Yes, it's very volatile, but it has intrinsic value. Um, and when currency itself has actually nothing to back it, and you look at Bitcoin, you say, well, what's backing Bitcoin? Everything's being backed by trust. Do you trust? How much do you trust Bitcoin? How much do you trust your, 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 your local currency? So digital assets like Bitcoin are a, are a threat to CBDCs. Um, the, the, there's a huge amount of regulation, I'm sure you've heard about it, taking place in the United States at the moment to try to almost squash Bitcoin and squash other cryptocurrencies. By the way, 99% of cryptocurrencies are a load of garbage, okay? Um, we've seen a lot of nonsense taking place. But Bitcoin is an interesting technology. It's, it's something that if you want to do your own research on, it's something, it's very, very interesting. If you go and read the white paper, it really is fascinating as a technology. I'm not here to advocate that you go and buy Bitcoin. I'm just saying, go and do your research. Um, so how does this affect my finances? Well, this is the thing I want to get to. How am I doing for time, by the way? I'm, okay, I'm, I'm trying to get through these last couple of slides as quickly as I can. Um, if we look at this wealth rule, 14%, and by the way, you must make up your mind what your wealth rule is. I'm not trying to dictate or to try and... Uh, you know, sort of speculate or say what it is, you need to come to that figure. But for me, it's 14%, okay? For me personally. If you have a look at your investments, and I ask you the question, and, and, we, and I've heard of people who have, some people have 100,000 pounds or, or in their bank account, cash, okay? And they'll keep it for years. Or I mean, we heard of people having a million pounds in cash, in bank accounts, okay? But think about it this way, is that if that money is being debased by 14%, it means that you can basically, on a million pounds, give me 140,000, I'll take it off you for, with pleasure. You know, I mean, that's what you're doing, is you're throwing away 140,000 uh, pounds at 14%, or if it's a 10%, you're throwing 100,000 pounds away, okay? Because it's being debased every year. You're losing that purchasing power. So... Is cash, keeping cash under your mattress or in a bank account a good idea? Well, not really. You're losing 14%, if 14%. Real estate, well, and just remember that what I stipulate over here, my, my disclaimer here is that um, this is really a thought exercise. I'm, I'm just wanting you, to, I'm wanting you to think about your investments. I'm not saying that these figures are real. I'm just saying... Think about it. If 14%, if your real estate is, if real estate is growing at, let's say, 10% nominal rate and your inflation rate is 14%, the real growth is a negative 4%. And by the way, this calculation is not just a simple subtraction. There is actually a proper mathematical calculation that works out exactly. But for the for this purpose of this presentation, it's just a simple way of looking at it. If you want that mathematical calculation, I have a spreadsheet that I can give that one to you as well if you're interested in that one. Um, Bonds. The 60-40 the, the bond portfolio is long dead. I mean, why would you ever be invested in bonds? If bonds are giving you a, a, a nominal rate of 4% and your inflation rate is 14%, it means you're going backwards year after year by minus 10%. Or by 10%. Equities. Well, that's fine. I mean, if you get a return on your equities at 4% and your inflation rate's at 14%, then you're going backwards by 2%. Retirement savings, this is the interesting one, okay? Um, and I worked in the industry. <laughs> Let's say that you're getting an 8% return on your retirement portfolio and your inf inflation rate's 14%. Well, that's minus 6%. Are you getting the picture? Are you starting to understand some of the questions you need to be asking yourself? What about Bitcoin? Well, I'm not going to answer that because it's too, it's too controversial. Are there any other things that you could be invested in? And that's where I'm going to come to just now. That would give you a return that is not only equal to, but better than 14%. And people say, oh, impossible, can't be done. I'm telling you it can be done. I'm doing it. It is possible to do it. You just need to learn. Just an interesting slide over here. For the last uh, two, two years and eight months, Bitcoin's given a return, even in this massive slump of 152%. S&P 522%, NASDAQ 10%, gold minus 2%, silver minus 12%, bonds minus 
as I mentioned, J.P. Morgan and a couple of other banks have, for manipulating the gold market have been fined, and they've willingly paid those fines, which means that they actually admit we are manipulating the gold market. It'll be very interesting to know what happens in the next few years about gold, and that's another presentation for another time. Very, very interesting. Um, uh, in Moscow, they are starting to set up a gold exchange that will rival, compete against the London, uh, the London. The, uh, the central banks, Russia, India, China, are accumulating gold at an alarming rate at the moment. Some of you will know this if you read the news properly. The amount of the, these uh, countries are accumulating gold tells me something's about to happen with gold. Do your own research. Not only Goldman Sachs, but many, many uh, organizations, HSBC, Barclays, USB, all fined um, for, for, for gold manipulation. You need to protect yourselves. Knowing what you've learned so far, what do you think of cash? What do you think of gold and silver? What do you think of equities, real estate, digital assets? And is there something else that you can do? So far as my closing thoughts are concerned, do we accept this nonsense that we need to accept the fact that we're going to get poorer? Absolutely not. We are not going to do. We are going to learn the best thing that you can do. And this is really where I'm trying to get to. The best thing that you can do is you can educate yourself as much as possible. because, And that's why I call my company Knowledge Smith. It's like Goldsmith, you know, Knowledge Smith. Um, we want to produce knowledge, give people as much information. If you want to sign up to my newsletter, I'll tell you about that at the end. But we want to give people as much knowledge so you become informed, because it's when a person is informed that they can actually make better decisions. But I look at it like this. Think about a cookie jar, okay? And look at all the things that take cookies out of the cookie jar. Inflation, interest. Okay, when you've got too much debt, you're paying too much interest. That is basically taking away from your wealth. I call it the wealth cookie jar, okay? And you need to actually ask yourself, what is subtracting from my wealth portfolios and what is adding? Because we take a lot of time to try to protect our wealth, but we don't think about things that can actually increase the cookies in our cookie jar. Does that make sense? So this is the exercise. And the first rule is that you need to decide that you are going to take full control and full responsibility for your finances. This is the most important thing that I've been telling my audiences for years and years and years. Most important thing that you can do is take ownership and responsibility for your own financial education and what you do with your money. Too many of us, too many of us, don't want to go down that route, so we basically leave it to other people. That's fine. I'm not saying that that's not a bad thing. But if you take more and more responsibility to know what's going on with your own finances, you empower yourself to be able to make better decisions and to do what's best for you. Yes? Agree? So self-sovereignty is really a very important concept and a very important concept to actually understand and to get your mind around. I like to say to people is that if you came into some money, let's say you were given an inheritance or you won the jackpot or uh, you, know, you sold a part of your business and you came into a, a, a sizable amount of money. Now, I'm not going to say how much that money is. It doesn't really matter whether it's 10,000 euros or 100,000 euros or a million euros. What would you do with that money to get the best return on investment knowing what you know after this presentation? What would you do? Where would you invest that money? Now, there's all sorts of factors like risk. I don't want to get into that. Um, but taking all those things aside, putting all those things aside, where would you take this amount of money? What would you do to it to make sure that you got a positive return, a real return that was higher than your rate of inflation? And the answer to that is the best thing you can do is educate yourself, number one. Put money into your own education. Secondly, to start a side hustle or a business. Because, by the way, the best returns that people get, and it is risky, but the best returns that people get are on businesses that they start and they build up. I mean, if you can get a business to start from nothing, okay, 
And you can explode that business and sell it one day at, let's say, you know, three, four million euros or whatever the case might be. And you started from nothing. Would that not be an incredible return on investment? So if you had 100,000 and you decided, right, there's a need in the old Gulf for tourism, and I'm going to basically get involved in this business activity, and I can grow that business over a period of 10 years and then sell it for a profit, would that not be a good return on investment? So education is important. Businesses are important. Yes, you can put your money into the stock markets and that. That's fine. You can buy physical gold. That's fine. But getting a good return comes from uh, self-investment, putting money back into yourself. Does that make sense? You know, there are literally, yes, and I know, Joe, you can speak to Joe and a number of the business coaches over here. Okay. They will help you. Okay. Okay. But there are thousands and thousands of people that come to recognize that they can't do it all on their own. They need a business coach. They need to know how to start. <laughs> they need to know how to start a, um, a side hustle. They need to know what to do. But yet we try, and, we try and do it all on our own, okay? Why not get it, somebody that can help you accelerate? It makes sense. So business coaching and, uh, is, is, is the way to go. Personal coaching. <clears throat> what do I do very quickly? Um, I help my wife uh, uh, run a digital and video marketing company. She mainly runs that business. I don't. But I just help her with, uh, with that business. I am wanting to really get more involved in speaking engagements and to try to encourage people to understand what I've just presented in this presentation. So if you've got a company and you want me to come and speak to your staff, um, I'm very happy to do that and encourage them to. Um, I also am involved in a little bit of business coaching, but I mean, you know, there are other business coaches here that have got far more experience than me. But if you want me to help, I, I do. One of the things I do is that I look at businesses and I, I think out of the box. And I say, but have you tried this? And that could be something that could really... So I'm happy to come and sit and consult and look at your business and say, have you thought of this? Um, I do digital asset consulting. I am very much involved in Bitcoin. I, I believe that it really is an interesting technology. And so if you want to know more about it, I can actually come and help you. Thank you very much. Are there any questions that you'd like to ask? I'm sorry, I've probably gone a little bit over time, but I'm sure you found it interesting. This has been a production of the IPBN in partnership with Pink Room. For more information, visit us online at island-portugal.com and on LinkedIn at Island Portugal Business Network. For more IPBN podcasts, find us on Spotify or visit our website for the full list of episodes.